This is Talk on the Wild Side. I'm Rob Smith. Welcome to the podcast that's just like an overexcited spaniel that likes to jump in dirty ponds chasing a squirrel, get all filthy and then shakes wet mud all over the hallway. But you love it anyway. Who's a good boy? Now this episode has a sort of development and sustainability theme running right through it. Kent Wildlife Trust is asking the National Grid to rethink Sealink. Sealink being a plan to put a new high voltage power cable right through some of the most environmentally sensitive land in the whole of the country at Pegwell Bay. It's the wrong place. It really is the wrong place. I feel like having met with National Grid, they have no idea about how wildlife sensitive this place is. I meet the housing developers, Fakem, who are building a new estate in Sussex and are pledging not only to be carbon neutral by 2025, but actually leave the finished site with more wildlife habitats than there were when it was just a field. There's back boxes that are integrated into some of these houses. So we've got habitats, we've got the hibernaculum, so there's enough bugs for them to eat. We're putting in something like 59 metres of new native hedgerow. That's more than there was before. And I think that's really exciting. And I visit the award-winning Goatleys Primary School in Ashford, where the kids of today are being given the chance to connect with nature in the hope they'll be the environmental champions of tomorrow. Because we're the next generation and we need to look after our planet because it, because um, obviously like global warming is like really affecting our planet. Talk on the wild side, it's going to be inspiring. Now let's start with Rethink Sealink. This is Kent Wildlife Trust's current campaign to persuade the national grid to take another look at their plans to put a high voltage power cable through Pegwell Bay and Minster Marshes, which are some of the most environmentally sensitive and theoretically protected lands in the whole of the UK. Sealink is a new cable that is going to connect Kent with Suffolk with the aim of allowing renewable energy to be moved around the UK more usefully. But while there's a great deal of support for the idea of better infrastructure to help with the transition away from a carbon-based energy system, there are real concerns that this cable and the associated substation and pylons that go with it will cause massive damage and destruction to the marshes. The National Grid do have multiple other potential options, but they've decided to go for Pegwell Bay despite the huge impact it could have on the environment, especially for the dozens of species of birds that rely on the bay's mud and marshes to survive over the winter. I went along to the country park at Pegwell Bay to see what the issues are and first spoke with Kent Wildlife Trust warden Nina Jones. Nina, where are we? So we're currently at Pegwell and Sandwich Bay National Nature Reserve, uh-huh. which is on the coastline uh, between Ramsgate and Dover, um, and it's one of our kind of only remaining areas of undeveloped coastline. It's an incredibly important area of wetland, um, and we're just walking along the edge of the coast path here, so we've got a view of the salt marsh um, and of the mudflats behind. And, I mean, it's quite a... It's a cold January day. It's, what, just above freezing. <laughs> it's grey... It's quite dim at this time in the afternoon, but it has a sort of its own um, sort of bleak beauty to it, doesn't it? 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that's part of the uh, quality of, of Pegwell Bay. Um, it's incredibly important for wildlife, but of course it's also important for people. Um, it's a green space where we can get our recreation, our fresh air, and um, it's also a place that we can um, just take time to be mindful. And of course, um, you know, wildlife is important to that. Um, people really enjoy the area for bird watching, and, and there's a growing realisation of how important that is to our mental health to spend time, um, you know, outside quality time in in peaceful nature natural areas such as Pegwell Bay and so I just want to get a bit of an idea about how uh, important and I mean it's pretty unique isn't it this is a space here give me an idea of the kinds of species of things that you'll find here that you won't find virtually anywhere else in Kent yeah, absolutely. So um, part of the reason for protective status here is um, some of our overwintering bird species, such um, as the sandaling and the grey and golden plover, which we find here in nationally recognised numbers. And they fly thousands of miles to get to Pegwell Bay um, or to stop here on their migratory route further south. And they rely on the salt marsh and the mudflats being undisturbed in order to be able to feed, regain their energy and gain enough fat to survive the cold winter as well. Well, okay, so as we look out across here at the moment, I mean, there's there's not too much bird life out here just at the minute, is there? But what, what can we see at the moment? So some of the bird life actually will be hidden in this salt marsh. It will be um, hiding away and roosting. Um, and then, of course, we've got the sandbank on the other side where we'll find um, other kinds of coastal birds, such as cormorants and various kinds of gulls that will be um, resting there as well and waiting um, for the, the sea to recede so that they can feed on the mud again. And, you, I mean, you're down here a lot, aren't you? Why is this place special? for you um i think it's partly the the tranquility as i've mentioned but also it's such a fascinating um array of habitats here you've got the chalk reef salt marsh and mud flats but you've also got the estuary where we have um kent's biggest land haul out site for common seals um so um, lots of different factors but it's such a wonderful mixture of habitats which is really unusual to see so why are you worried about this sea link project because it's quite a big space you know as we look across it it's it's hundreds of acres that we've got here and it's just one cable that's going to go through the middle of it why is that an issue um, it's an issue because um, we are yet to find out um, through surveys the um, real damage that could be done um, to the landscape, to the habitats and to uh, the species that survive here. And we know from um, the previous Nemo link that was trenched through the salt marsh in 2017 that the damage can be irreparable. The salt marsh still hasn't fixed itself. It hasn't repaired. Um, and there and How long ago did the Nemo link go in? So that was 2017. Right, OK. So it's, what, six years on and it's still a scar? Yeah, absolutely. It's changed the flow of water through the landscape um, and there haven't been surveys done on the direct damage um, to other kinds of habitats such as the shellfish shellfish beds from the Nemo Link. So we really need more research done into those. Okay. And at the time when Nemo Link went in, did National Grid sort of say that it was all going to be fine afterwards? Uh, Yes, those are the usual kind of um, terms that we we get... um, through and reports um, uh, but there wasn't even um, the mitigation done on the salt marsh which was agreed which was a repairing of the bank um, behind it. So there's a there's a degree of trust that has been lost that they haven't managed to rebuild yet. 
uh, yes, I would say so. Um, we obviously um, do our best to provide um, uh, enough information and to, to kind of demand uh, the surveys that we believe need to be done in order to, this is to mitigate the impact. Yeah. We're not saying that we don't agree with renewable energy um, and the, the pipeline has to go somewhere, but we need more information about the mitigation hierarchy in regards to the other options for routing this cable through North East Kent. Now, someone else who's deeply worried about the sealing plans is Nick Mitchell, a local activist and ecologist who loves Minster Marshes. So, Nick, we're, we're just on the land between Pegwell Bay and Minster Marshes yep, here. Um, why is this bit of the world important to you? Pegwell Bay is connected to Minster Marshes in what's known as the Stour Valley, and the two are very intrinsically linked. They're both, they're both important. So right now we've just had a high tide, and a lot of the birds that have been feeding out on the salt marsh, and they say that one cubic metre of estuary mud contains the equivalent calories of 16 chocolate bars. Oh, wow. <laughs> but when the tide's in, they can't get to that, yeah. so they head into the marshes to feed, and the, the fields and the wetlands of the marshes is where they will move to during high tide and they will also sometimes roost there at night. So they're very intrinsically linked and we get big numbers of birds to and fro in between the, the bay and the marshes. Because bird, birds are really your thing, aren't they? That's when you're a conservationist, yeah, yeah, you're, you're you know really concerned about the environment, but birds is really, that's your passion. Yeah, absolutely. Birds is my thing and I can hear them. There's some long-tailed tits calling in the tree behind me and I'm really in tune with birds and you, you live the world in a different way when you're knowing what what's going on with birds birds are definitely my thing <laughs> and so given that how special is this this area the whole pegwell bay minster marshes area extremely important i mean three percent of the land in the uk is wetland and it's home to 10 percent of all of our species you know we've lost 73 million birds in the last 50 years uh, wildlife uh, wildlife is in a, in a bad way and the these marshes are always full of birds uh, it, it's a place for them to gather safely in numbers away from people. And, and what, I mean, favourite is always a dangerous word, isn't it? But what are the ones that, when you see birds around here, that you get really excited about? Well, this time of year in the winter, because it does change with the seasons, this time of year in the winter, I absolutely love seeing the big numbers of cormorants coming in. And at any time right now, they could be coming over, heading back towards Stodmarsh, and they would have been feeding out in the bay. And we get flocks of them flying in their V formations in the hundreds. And, you, and it's a real spectacular sight. And also the big flocks of lapwing that we get moving around. Um, so probably the lapwings and the cormorants this time of year for me. So, Sea Link. Yes. You're deeply concerned about that. Yeah, really. Why? Yeah. It's the wrong place. It really is the wrong place. I mean, I agree we need to, we need to sort out our infrastructure, the growing demands, and especially the growing demands of EV, uh, and, and obviously green energy. I accept it, but this is really is the wrong place for it. And I feel like having met with National Grid, they have no idea about how wildlife sensitive this place is. And they, uh, and and I'm very connected to the marshes. I, I I grew up in Minster, and I'm down the marshes all the time, and I know it so well. You know, we've got incredible wildlife down there. I'm talking breeding nightingales, turtle doves. We've got beavers. We've got peregrine falcons, the world's fastest animal. We've got Water voles, the fastest declining mammal. Breeding turtle doves, the fastest declining bird. We've got incredible wildlife down there. Owls, bats, um, the list goes on. And they want to build this ginormous converter station right on the marshes, neighbouring a site of special scientific interest. And we're talking 22 acres plus, um, 100 feet high. 
and we're talking 100 feet high 100 feet that's high. a big building and they haven't really let out of the bag any artist impressions of what it's going to look like so when this does go into planning in the autumn people are going to be like wow and then we're going to be like we told you so we must campaign because it's going to catch a lot of people off guard just how ginormous this is going to be okay and that the land so i think it's 17 hectares isn't it that they put aside for yes, the substation so that's uh, what 30 odd acres yeah, but the building it's, itself is 20 odd acres it's 22 acres and i think that equates to about nine hectares right, okay. but they have changed their mind on the size right. now we're talking a 40 acre field where they want to build it but they've up they've up to the size they want to build it's getting bigger each time okay. so it's a significantly large building uh, uh, light pollution noise pollution water runoff and what is your concern then that, what kind of impact is that actually going to have on the wildlife in the area it's going to have impact in many ways so i mean one of the concerns is electromagnetic field it can interfere with certain species of birds migration um, the noise pollution can interfere with things like bats and owls um, the light pollution can interfere with owls and uh, bats uh, mm-hmm. you know and it interferes with humans as well um, and the other thing is the big pylons they want to build we, it's a super highway for migrating birds, the marshes. They come off the bay and are heading land to the marshes. And they want to put great big giant pylons right across the river. So it's going to be a real bird strike hazard. And we get big, big flocks of birds coming through. So if one of them hits, multiple birds will hit. And you can imagine when they migrate at night time, they haven't got a chance of seeing them. You can hear the passion in Nick Mitchell's voice, can't you? And he is far from being alone. Now, Steve Weeks is an area manager for Kent Wildlife Trust. This site is one of the most highly protected sites in the country because of its wildlife value. Sealink isn't the first cable to come through here. We had the uh, Thanet offshore cable came through in 2010, came through the Nature Reserve. In 2017, we had the Nemo Link cable, which came through the reserve. Um, a couple of years ago, Vattenfall tried to put a third cable through, but fortunately that was turned down. Um, and now we have the National Grid Sea Link cable coming through. So it's this in combination effect of um, these companies say that this is the most uh, appropriate route to use, which we don't necessarily agree with. So other companies in the future will use the same argument and we've got this potential for just more and more cables to be coming through. And what, what impact does that actually have? You know, so as you say, the, the Nemo link is coming through here and there is wildlife here now. So the companies might argue, well, stuff has come through and the wildlife's still here. It's not a problem. That's right. Well, there's, a, there's two different levels of disturbance. You've, you've got the impact when the construction phase is going on. So you've got the direct disturbance of the birds that are out there trying to feed and roost and rest on these, these sites. And then you've got the long-term impacts after the construction. If you go and look down where the Nemo cable came ashore, they used a trench technique. So they basically went out with machines, dug a big trench, put the cable in it and backfilled it. They said at the time that they could mitigate for the damage to the salt marsh. Um, But sadly, here we are sort of six years later and you can still see a big sway through the salt marsh where the where the cable went through so we are concerned that they that the there are long-lasting impacts to some of these cable projects what would you like them to do instead we would like them to firstly we're not completely satisfied with the argument they used for this route there were several other routes proposed in the uh, initial stage of the project 
um, we would like a clear explanation why some of those other routes that are less environmentally damaging haven't been chosen. And why do you think they haven't? Well, we're not sure, but they haven't they haven't adequately given us the information to, to, right. to answer that. Do you have a suspicion, though? I mean, do you, do you think they think this is the cheapest way of doing it? I suspect that this is probably is the cheapest route, yes, and that's why the previous cables have come through this route as well. Right, OK. I also spoke with Emma Waller, who's leading the Trust campaign to rethink Sealink. She's actually been working alongside the National Grid to try and get them to understand the potential environmental impacts of the different routes that have been suggested. It's, it's, it's frustrating, especially when we know that there are alternative routes that have least, um, less environmental constraints. One of the six options that they have identified for the landfall at Kent is Broadstairs. Uh, that is one of the options, and in some of the reports, it actually seems to have some of the least environmental damaging um, constraints. But we're not quite sure why Pegwell Bay is their chosen route. What then do you want people to do about it? Because the consultation period is actually finished, isn't it? Yes, so they submitted their preliminary environmental information reports in October, which was open to public consultation. Uh, and reviewing that, it's frustrating to see that the majority of their ecological surveys, which should actually help determine the route, have not actually been undertaken. So they haven't even started a lot of their surveys. So we think that they submitted this preliminary environmental information report prematurely and that we would like them to resubmit once they've finished um, their ecological information so so there's there's still all to play for yes yeah at the moment even though we've written quite a, a detailed response it's we still can't see the justification of the chosen route and we can't form an appropriate review of of the route because there's just not that ecological information there they've not provided that mitigation so at the moment we just don't know the full environmental impacts that it will have and as a final thought process there has been a a link put through here before the nemo link comes right through the park here if you didn't know you perhaps wouldn't know there, there's a kind of a big chalky scar bank that goes through the middle of it but people who come down here may well not know that there's a power cable here at all and they might think well if one's gone through another one can go through it's not a problem so why couldn't another one not go through here so yes the nemo link went through i think in 2017 and again at the time there was all these promises that trenchless techniques could happen Um, so that's when you don't have to literally trench through you can push the cables through using trenchless technology so they're pushed underneath um, the salt marsh. So it's like a moling one that's like digs its own tunnel as it goes along kind of thing. I assume so I'm not I'm not an expert but right, yes okay. yes. You're not an engineer but <laughs> no, I'm not an engineer but, but it would, you wouldn't see anything on the ground exactly, at all. Exactly yeah there's it's a trenchless option mm-hmm. um, but when the time came for whatever reason they no longer could do that so they trenched right through the salt marsh um, and there's you can still see the the damage caused from that the salt marsh hasn't repaired in seven years since it's happened um so it's really concerning that again they are at the at the stage they cannot confirm to use entrenchless options for the sea link um and one of their reasons for the chosen route is that they could use trenchless options but they still can't commit to it at this stage so as a trust you have some trust issues (laughs) <laughs> with with the national grid yeah exactly and because there's already been that damage that hasn't been repaired you know no mitigation no compensation was done 
from that damage you know it could risk irreversible damage if it's then trenched again so there are some real issues for the national grid to address at pegwell bay uh, we on the podcast here have put a bid in to have a chat with them directly i really hope we can watch this space on that one in the meantime if you want to find out more about the proposals and what you could potentially do to help in the Wildlife Trust campaign to rethink Sealink, then take a look at the website and you can find links to pages there that will show you how to lobby your MP, sign the petition and generally let National Grid know how you feel about it. House building. It's a massively contentious issue. We all want to live in a nice, safe, warm, comfortable home, but we hate it if somebody builds a new estate on what used to be the fields on the edge of town. And if you're at all concerned about the environment, then seeing the mud and the disruption and the lorries going in and out and the noise and the disturbance, I mean, it can cause real anxiety, anger even. But we also know that there simply aren't enough houses to go around. So what are we going to do about it? Well, Thacom is a building firm that's based in Billingshurst in West Sussex who are trying to do things a bit differently. They seem to have a genuine conscience. In 2022, they were recognised as the best construction and engineering company in the southeast. They've been given a gold award for supporting people leaving the armed forces and getting them into work. And they've pledged that every Thacom home they build from 2025 onwards will be net zero carbon. They also pledge to increase biodiversity on their sites, with the aim being to actually leave the environment with more habitats for species after they've finished building. Now that all sounds great, doesn't it? But is it too good to be true? I went to Berry Croft, which is a new development of 39 homes on the edge of Newick in East Sussex, to meet Josie Cadwallader-Hughes, who's Thacombe's sustainability director, and to see for myself. I've got my steel toe cap wellies on. Yes. I've got my hard hat on. Yeah. I've got my high vis. Mm-hmm. Where are we? We are at Newick, which is uh, one of our uh, developments in East Sussex. And we are at the early stages of construction, so there's plenty of guys with lots of layers on getting to work building some houses. And uh, <laughs> it's very picturesque at the moment because it is snowing really quite heavily. It's quite nice, actually. Normally, construction sites can be such muddy places. It's quite, it's quite nice, isn't it? It's quite scenic. So, tell me a bit about your role. What, what's your job on the construction site? You're not a, you're not on the tools, are you? You're not actually drilling things and banging nails into stuff. No, I'm not. No, no. I leave that to the professionals. So, I'm the sustainability director, and what that means is, my job is kind of at a strategic level making sure that we're heading in the right direction so I'm looking five years ahead um, rather than on the tools what what are we doing tomorrow and I'm here to support and empower all of the employees to change and improve the impact of our business. Okay so as we're stood here on a construction site I mean it looks like a standard construction site to me you know there's there's mud and there's diggers and there's bricks and there's all the stuff that you would expect to see on a normal house site and it's a standard development as it appears from the outside so what are you doing differently that makes it sustainable as opposed to just another development this is quite this is one of the things that i really like about the way thacom does it is you'd see these houses and go these are just normal houses like i live in at home but they're actually way more efficient energy wise 
And then um, we'll see as we walk around, but there are swift bricks and integrated bat bricks into the fabric of the buildings. There's hibernaculums, which are really important. There's hedgehog highways and hotels uh, throughout the development. So in every fence line, there is a hole for a hedgehog to get through because they travel about three kilometres every night. And there's little things like that that you wouldn't, you know, to the untrained eye, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't see it, but there, there is loads of stuff weaved throughout this, whether it's solar panels and all sorts of stuff that markedly makes these more sustainable than what you would get somewhere else. And you used a word I've not heard before there, a hibernaculum. What, yeah. I presume that's some sort of hibernation-related thing, is it? It kind of is, yeah. So they, they tend to look like really messy piles, which is where the landscapers and the landscape designers get quite twitchy because they're meant to be messy, they're meant to be kind of moss-covered. You can have bricks in there, you can have logs and all sorts of stuff in there, but they are secluded, safe areas away from predators for bugs, beetles, very small mammal, mammals. Okay. Right, so you're deliberately leaving kind of messy bits on the sites as you're going along. They're not. They're, they're deliberately messy bits. Yeah, deliberately but, messy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's done with our ecologists, so there is, there is a knack to getting them right. You actually dig down first before you start layering stuff over. And uh, these areas are so important to talk to residents about because otherwise they'll just think, oh, the builders have left a pile of rubble. But no, it's really important for wildlife. Those areas are really crucial and they're designed. They're not accidental. So we're stood at the side of a, of a building here. So there's a number of sort of slits in the brick which are weep vents, aren't they? They're straightforwardly... Yeah, that's just to keep the, the moisture out of the inside of the building, okay. right? Uh, but what you've got at the top there in the eaves is a small little hole in a brick, just there. Yeah. And um, these are really important. So, you know, decades ago, you wouldn't have had PVC soffits stopping your beams from getting, getting damp. Mm-hmm. And now we do. And what that means is there's one less habitat for a species, a red-listed species, so it's really in critical need. And that is their kind of natural habitat. They, they live side by side with us for about 20 years And that, as well. that hole is, I mean, it's, it's tiny really, isn't it? It's only, what, a couple of inches long and an inch tall? Yeah, yeah. So behind that, there's a, there's a, um, a plastic box that is designed by ecologists to be exactly the right habitat and... One like that will play home to swifts, to house martins, to a range of different small nest, cavity nesting birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is there's no maintenance needed. Like that, that is just something that is can be there. It's not disturbing anybody. And, and it does it live. cause an issue internally? Would you know that they're in there? You'd never know. So what they like is they they would have originally swooped up into the eaves. So that's where we tend to put them. We put them. You know, within close distance so effectively it's in your roof cavity anyway but even if your bedroom was the other side of that you wouldn't hear them in that box they're so quiet they're they're good guests they're good house guests and can you can you retrofit them if i was to want to put you know is it literally the size of a house brick or do you have to is it a bigger space than that you can get ones that are just as big as a house brick and you would just take that brick out and the the mortar around it and you'd be able to slot that in um, but you can get other ones, you know, uh, we all know what like a bird box looks like and you can attach those to your homes as well. But by us doing it here and now, it's something that it's, it's just so much easier for house builders to do some stuff, whether it's wiring for a battery so that that's one less hassle because rewiring a house is a real pain mm-hmm. or whether it's putting stuff like swift bricks in 
developers have that opportunity and we should take it. And obviously this isn't the only site that Thacom has, so you're doing this in all new builds now, eh? Yeah, so uh, we've been really lucky to have some really uh, proactive ecologists that have pushed us to put more and more of these in and actually we're, we're looking at, uh, at making a really big commitment to, to installing things like Swift Bricks going forward. So it's, it's definitely here to stay, this commitment. So this is a, a house that's under construction and there's no brick or block in this, is there? No, so this is a timber frame house. Now, normally what we would do is there'd be this skin of, co- of concrete blocks which are pretty carbon intensive, quite labour intensive, having to lay them one by one. And by building with timber frame, we drop what's called the embodied carbon emissions. So that's everything into like creating that material before it arrives to our construction site. Mm -hmm. It means it's quicker. It's actually easier for us to jam much more insulation in it and therefore make it more energy efficient over time. So if this is cheaper, quicker and easier to build, and yeah. better insulated. Why aren't all houses made like wow. this? It's one of those things, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of it that's, that's just how houses are built, right? There's that tradition. Um, and there's, you know, I've got a lot of time for that. But, you know, the, the designs for timber frame buildings are so good now. I think it's about 90% of the houses in Scotland, a cold, wet, windy place, are all timber frame now. And in terms of the wood itself, you're sourcing that sustainably yeah so everything that arrives has to be either fsc so forest stewardship stewardship council or pefc which is a similar sort of certification scheme for the supplier so just that we really rely on the timber frame contractors which in this case is pinewood to make sure that they're delivering the top quality timber <clears throat> that it's all marked up with the right stamps and the right certification and we've got the evidence it's mm. really important yeah because this is the thing isn't it we, we, we talked a bit about you know swift boxes and hibernaculums my yeah. new word of the day um and doing stuff on the site to try and kind of mitigate all the impacts but you can't get rid of all those impacts can you so there's some stuff that you're trying to look at off-site as well absolutely so you know, we, we are stood on something that is the, the actual footprint that everyone pictures when they think of a house build, builder. This is, this is one of our impacts. But there, there's also our carbon emi- emissions because we've got big chunky vehicles rolling around sites um, and we'll go and find the fuel bowser and, and that, that, that'll be in constant use. Those carbon emissions almost feel imaginary to some people, but, you know, that's, that's the biggest, the most carbon intensive thing that we do here is we've got big bits of kit that can't yet be replaced with hydrogen or a new technology. So we've, we're always looking at that bigger picture, what really is our true impact considering everything. So how do you mitigate that then? How, how do you get away from the fact that you're builders, <laughs> that, yeah, that you no, have to well, have a footprint? Is. A certain amount of it is is we're here to deliver... Um, what I see is a really positive force for good. You know, we are providing homes, in this case, 50% affordable homes that are in partnership with a housing association that are much needed in this area. So there's that, there's that, you've still got that good hand that is the real positive bit, but you've still got carbon emissions and you've got um, biodiversity, you know, you've got, might have some, some mute mitigation where you've got to move some newt somewhere else or, you know, there's lots of other stuff that happens, but there's an economic benefit and a social benefit from building these houses. Through biodiversity net gain, there's also a biodiversity benefit from building these houses on site. Then the only one for this development, 
left remaining is the carbon emissions from all of the big bits of kit rolling around and that's when carbon offsetting comes into play so we work with uh, planet mark mm-hmm. who are an excellent organization that they certify our data so they they do all of the boring bit for us and making sure that we are bang on track and we know what our emissions are because that's really important making sure you really are in touch with that mm-hmm. and then we use offsetting schemes that bit what's really important to us is that they are as transparent as possible and that they're as verifiable right they, they've got all of the ticks and stamps that they need so we use ecology what that means is there's quite a few companies that use it and if you go onto ecology.com forward slash stakem you can see every bit of offsetting we've done with them now i know that some people will be listening to this and thinking yeah 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 you're builders you're in this to make money that's the the bottom line of all of this and i hear what you're saying but i just don't really believe it what's um really impressive is that the way that the industry is changing Thacom as an example we reduced our carbon emissions by 43 percent last year and i've not known of a company doing that and i've not known of a company make the commitments that we have to be building net zero carbon homes so yes we're here to build houses that's not a negative thing that's a really positive thing and we're trying to do it in a way that is testing out the latest bits of kit that is we tested 13,000 litres of low carbon fuel last year this year it'll be 27,000 we've got high binoculars we've got everything built into the developments now I think some... a bit of building going on behind us there <laughs> there we go the telly lifters out the way now there we go <laughs> well it's a busy construction site, which is good to see but uh-huh. I think sometimes with developers they've made lots of promises of what they're going to deliver in the future but we're on a site now that is testing low carbon fuels mm-hmm. that has got swift bricks that has got hedgehog highways and that is a 50 percent reduction in carbon emissions so rather than being in that position i'm not promising something for the future we're delivering it now okay. it is freezing out here should we go <laughs> in the show really, really cold <laughs> we'll go inside on, let's go. oh that's better <laughs> <laughs> so Josie, we've we've come in from the cold, and it was bitterly cold out here. I'm pleased to say, in the show home, we're in the kitchen of the the show home here. It's nice and warm, so that's good. The insulation's working. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite a relief to be inside, if I'm honest. So I just want to talk a little bit about the the biodiversity, the net biodiversity gain. Uh, and this was a field, the, this particular development beforehand. So it whether was. it was it arable, did it have horses yeah. on it, whatever it was. So this was, yeah, this was just kind of poor quality agricultural land. Um, and the first thing that we do is we go out and do loads of surveys. And I had a dig through these before I came to talk to you today. And one of them was that in September, there are 109 bats per night flying over this area. Mm-hmm. And then what that does is that informs the ecologist to go, well, this is really important. And they can tell you the species of the bat and the history of them and how, you know, rare they are. Um, just by, they have these uh, recording devices that are monitoring the different frequencies of the bats. Right, they so fly okay, the bat squeaks, it listens yeah, ex- for the bats. Right? It listens okay. for the different squeaks, different bats. Uh-huh. And there are 109 per night. And I was like, that's loads. 100, over 100 bats a night are flying over this area. The result of that is the lighting that is designed into this development is situated really close to the ground and it only ever points downwards so you can see where your feet are going Mm -hmm. but there's not this kind of what you would expect normally which is these big kind of lampposts all around the place and those small tweaks are only because we've got the technology that those ecologists can tell us how many bats flew over each night and we've got the lighting design that can then inform that now that's separate to biodiversity net gain biodiversity net gain is purely about the types of habitats 
But what we've learned is that biodiversity is more complex than those numbers. It's actually about how you bring people in touch with uh, the the nature that's on their doorstep. Okay, so if we came back here in five years' time, would you expect there to be more than 109 bats flying a, a, a night over this area? There, We've done everything that we can to make sure that's the case. So there's... There's bat boxes that are integrated into some of these houses. So very much like that swift brick one that we saw, mm-hmm. there are special bat ones where the inside the, the brick it goes upwards so that they can they hang from the inside of that. Mm-hmm. So we've got habitats, we've got the hibernaculum, so there's enough bugs for them to eat. And there's enough... Um, we're putting in something like 59 metres of new native hedgerow. So the foraging is there that wasn't there before. There's, uh, you know, there's a 29% biodiversity net gain here and there's habitats for them because of the um, the bat roosts and there's low-level lighting so they're not disrupted. So f- from my point of view, that's more than there was before. And I think that's really exciting. Now, you you mentioned, and, and obviously the fact that this is gas-fired central heating in this house... Um, that's that's difficult to to mitigate against once you're burning it you're you're burning it so you're looking to offset that in different ways and i know that Thacom have have entered into a project with Ken Wildlife Trust haven't you we have explain a bit about what what you've actually done there so what we do is we calculate our carbon footprint as an organization that's made up of um, the energy used in our offices in our show homes like this in our construction sites and all of the litres of fuel that's used, the diesel that's that's used by the equipment on site. We then calculate the carbon emissions from that. That's then verified by an organisation called PlanetMark, and they make sure that we stick to reducing our emissions by at least 5% a year. So there's that, there's that commitment to reduction. This isn't just about paying the problem away somewhere else. This is about genuinely reducing our carbon emissions. There, there's an element of it that we do through traditional offsetting, but there's also we also calculate our home working, mm-hmm. so it's the emissions used in our employees' homes when they're working from home, mm-hmm. and that we thought actually that's so personal. Let's invest in a really personal project. We've got an office that's opened in Kent. Uh, it's literally twenty minutes down the road from Heathercorry Vale, and a lot of our employees work there, and we've got a lot of construction sites there. So we saw that development come through that project come through with with wilder carbon and thought what a great opportunity not only to invest in true carbon offsetting in a scheme that we can physically go and visit and that we can see and we can understand Mm -hmm. you know that otherwise carbon offsetting can feel like something that is just happening a million miles away that doesn't feel genuine Mm -hmm. whereas this we can physically go and see it and i think that engagement is so important and obviously any development lots of people don't like to see any development at all you know nimbyism is a real thing people need to live in houses but they don't want new ones being built in their backyard in general terms what do you say to people who say this is just greenwashing this is just you know pretending that you're doing something that's better for the environment whereas in fact it's it's what house builders do you build houses and you make some money for it and then you go on to the next project I think you've got to You've got to have a real basis of like the, as a developer, you've got to be able to look at what you've achieved and it's got to be genuine. You've got to be able to say, I said I'd deliver this and I've delivered it. I I would admit that other developers in the past have created that kind of 
that dislike of new builds, they all kind of look like the same house repeated over and over again. The gardens are just swamps of mud that are just left there for other people to deal with. And the there's signs saying, please keep off the grass. We've walked around today. We're in houses that look unique and they look part of this community at Newick. There are features that are built into this house that will be there for as long as this house stands that will be constantly saving the bills of the people living here. And I think there's a level of commitment that goes beyond just... We're not just here putting up boxes. These are high-quality homes for not just us, but um, not just for private customers, but for housing associations. And I think there's there's a genuine benefit here to having a development that is going to deliver more biodiversity than what was here previously. And as a final thought then, from your personal perspective, I mean, are you are you actually, if you're having a conversation with somebody in a pub, are yeah. you proud of what you do or are you a bit embarrassed about it? Mm-mm. I'm really proud of what we do because I think, you know, I think as a sustainability professional, you, you've got choices when you leave education or when you start this career of... I, I never wanted to work for someone that was always in opposition, that was always saying, you're not doing this right, you know, you're not, it, that was always kind of almost defeatist. I wanted to work inside an organisation that was prepared to make changes. And I that inspires me. That's what keeps me going, is that I have a real opportunity to change the houses that we build, the environments that those those buildings sit within. And... When you work in house building, this isn't a product that is fleeting like um, a sandwich, you know, or this cup of tea. This is a product that will be here for decades. And there are so many developments now that, you know, I've been working in the industry for 10 years that I can walk past and I can see this stuff in, in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that that legacy is really important to me that I know if I can make that, a, if I can convince a handful of people to put, I don't know, swift bricks in, in every house or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or a hedgehog highway in every house. If I can just convince that one person once, that change kind of is, is like a, a pebble in a pond. Yeah. It kind of, it just yeah. ripples out and goes to every development and is there for decades. And so as a final thought, I know that you, you deliberately chose to go down the, the route of being an environmental engineer yes. because you were worried about the state of things. Are you more optimistic now than maybe you were 10 years ago for the direction we're headed in oh absolutely i think we've got way more solutions now that you've got companies like you know octopus energy who a company like that that is truly forward thinking that has their own air source heat pumps and their own engineers and can work with developers you know that that i think the industries around house building is changing and it's enabling us to find new solutions it's i think they're if you go back five years, ten years, house builders would go, well, we couldn't possibly. There's no way. There's no. There's not the. There's not the product for this. There's not. There's not that many solar panels around that we can access on a regular basis. The material supply chain isn't there. The consultants don't know yet. We're at that changing point where the products exist. The consultants know. The planners want us to build these types of homes, and customers are walking into our show home saying, "Can you deliver this?" And I think that's such a unique situation that all house builders so should be doing as a bare minimum should be doing what Fakem are doing great 
Josie, thanks ever so much. Lovely to meet you. Likewise. Josie Cadwallader-Hughes at Fakeham House Builders there and some genuinely interesting stuff and it shows just how much the conversation's shifted that the role of sustainability director now exists at house builders at all. And we mentioned Heather Corrie Vale in our conversation. That's Kent Wildlife Trust's wilder carbon site in kent and i'm hoping to go and have a proper look round there in a future episode it's a former golf course near seven oaks that the trust is allowing to kind of naturally transform into a wilder landscape and it's going to be really interesting to see what surprises it's already starting to throw up right break time's over come on you lot time to go back to school uh, one particular school, in fact, Goatley's Primary School, which is in Kennington near Ashford in Kent. They are gold award winners in the Wilder Kent Awards after creating all sorts of wildlife havens around the school grounds to encourage everything from birds and hedgehogs to frogs and newts on the site. Much of the hard work in making it all happen has been led by assistant head Andrea DeRook and high-level teaching assistant Elaine Paget. And the other day I went to meet them and some of the kids to see what they've been up to. It doesn't matter what the weather, we've been out in blizzards <laughs> and the well, children have been splitting pallets with yes, us and making it freezing <laughs> and absolutely loving it. And just we just noticed how how it sort of lifted everybody's spirits, yeah. just being yeah. together and being outside and yeah. exhilarating and then stopping for a moment to just it's like when we were digging up the compost yeah. and we found we found the toads and the children all were interested and want to come and it's just exciting and yeah and it's I, just I, I also think you know we've got so many children where sitting in a classroom mm. at a table um and our education system sometimes doesn't lend to children Indeed. who like yeah. to like to be out doing things with their hands find learning a bit more challenging mm. and you can see as soon as they come outside their whole body just relaxes Mm. Um, and they know they're doing something good one of our most challenging children helped to set up the micro wood and he was measuring the distance of where to plant the trees he was asking if he could come back and see the trees when they were grown he was wondering what sort of birds would be in the trees so all of that directing other children and yeah working as a team it was was unbelievable the difference yeah even his mother was saying wasn't she that this is where he needs to be be. it it was yeah so it's important to a, a lot of children yeah, for well, many different Should we go and have a look at the micro yes. with them? Yeah, let's go, let's go. So as we're wandering through the meadow area, in the corner, there is a group of kids having a bonfire. Is, is this... <laughs> Not on their own. No, no, indeed. There's an adult with them. Um, is, this, is this a lesson? Is this part of it? Uh, so this is Mr Henry from Bushcraft Bundy, uh, who runs a forest school session, and we pay for Mr Henry to come in. And the children in Key Stage 2 get to have at least two sessions in their time with us so two term falls of sessions their time with us which they absolutely love and he teaches them things like making nettle soup whittling um sticks uh, all sorts he could probably tell you actually i'm sure he wouldn't mind telling you right come on then (laughs) (laughs) Uh, phil henry Uh, i do um i run a company called 
Bundu Bushcraft um, and I also work as a specialist teacher for KCC doing all sorts of outdoor learning and bushcraft. And we are sitting uh, literally around a campfire which is fortunately burning very well. It's nice and warm because it's freezing out here. Um, what, what are you doing? Um, well, I, I come in on a Wednesday afternoon and work with a group of students and teach them how to light the fire and keep warm and all those sorts of survival skills. We've been learning the last couple of weeks how to light fires and these guys have managed to do this. This is all their own work and the reward is they get a s'more at the end of it. So there's a little bit of a reward for the effort put in. Why do you do this why is it important to you to do this rather than anything else it's a i think relationships it all boils down to relationships relationships that you build with students the relationships that they build with the outside the relationships with with everything the, the, the constant questions and i love is you know why are we burning the wood what sort of wood do we use what what do we use for this for it's just fantastic and it really shows their need for being outside as well as learning in the classroom but this is just like a lovely added bonus for them so boys what do you make of um coming out and doing this is it different to being in the classroom normally yeah Yeah. do you like it yeah why because we just get to learn how to make fires and if you ever need to do it you know how to do that and all the nature stuff that the school does is that good yeah. yeah. Why? Because like we really respect nature and we need to make sure that we all respect it and it's all good. How about you? What do you think? Uh, it's really good because we're the next generation and we need to look after our planet because it because um, obviously like global warming's like really affecting our planet. So we need to just look after it. And how about you? What do you think? I think as we, if we keep doing it and then and our planet will keep getting better and better and then it'll stop global warming. And do you get to see sort of wildlife, you know, in the school gardens yeah. around here? Yeah. What, what kind of things have you seen? Foxes. Foxes? We've seen a couple of foxes, foxes. up there. Uh-huh. We've seen, like, some mouses, cats. Frogs. Lots of birds? Yeah. Lots of insects? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Is it, is it good fun? I mean, it's a cold day today. You don't mind coming out here on the cold? No. Free s'mores no. as well. Free yeah. s'mores. <laughs> you get the s'mores, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Right. So we just walked a little way along from where the uh, where the lads are having their their schmores, nice. <laughs> and we're at the woodland bank here. And as I'm looking around, you've got I mean, there's bird boxes up in the trees. You've got uh, stumps that are being left to just do their thing on the the sides here. It, it's a properly uh, kind of deliberately neglected yes, corner, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is absolutely. And we've sort of put in sort of like snowdrops and crocuses, and and we tried to get some other sort of flowers that would grow naturally on this kind of environment we, we look up and research with the children to sort of see what kind of plants are best suited and then we put them in we've only just done this this year haven't we mm-hmm. so it's it's quite new so you're really looking forward to spring yes. see what gets going yes absolutely it's going to be exciting and of course as the children you see with the, the pathway they can walk down and then hopefully they'll be noticing what's going on it's quite nice to say with the bird cafe just there so yeah we're we're hoping it's going to burst into life oh sure it will and there 
Or is that the robin? There's a robin. Yeah. Literally just a couple constantly. of feet away. Well, when we... Yes, he's very fat. <laughs> and he's very used to us. When we're raking up the leaves, and we obviously we push some to the side for like hedgehogs and whatever, so that we don't take them all away. And then the other, the rest goes up to our compost heap. But he's always sitting there waiting because he knows there's going to be something there. So we're, we're inside now. Out yes. of the breeze, which is nice. It's nice, yes. <laughs> it's about 50 degrees warmer here. It is slightly, yeah. <laughs> um, and we're in the what the library yep. area here. And along the edge, we've got a whole bunch of different sort of uh, bug house designs. Yes. Um, we are Claire Norman are from our local council. She's the educational environmental officer. Uh-huh. And she asked if I would like to be or the school would like to be involved in a competition to design a bug house that would then be um, upscaled and put in, in, put in situ over to the um, designer outlet and because they're trying to rewild uh, the outlet. Um, so yeah, and, this and so this windmill here, this yes, magnificent the, Willsborough yeah. windmill, this is yes. the winner. This is the yes. one they're going to actually yeah. build. They're going to build that. So they're going to. Um, How big's the real one going to be? I, do you know what? I don't know. She just said because I think the Singleton Environmental Centre, uh-huh. the repair shop over there, they're the gentlemen that are going to be making scaling it, scaling it up. Yeah. So we don't know. We've just been told it's going to be big. <laughs> it's exciting I'll look out for that (laughs) but with all of these I mean these are sort of classic bug hotel designs in lots of ways aren't they we've got lots of uh, straws bricks bits of all sorts of different sizes and shapes of materials to let the insects properly get into anybody can make these can't they oh absolutely absolutely yes and I think the children loved uh, you know making them the fact that we had so many varied designs sort of quite sort of abstract and modern down to the like the fairy cottages and Thor's hammer which was Quite unusual, but the, the yeah, the Willsborough windmill one. This is the thing, isn't it? When you let children's imagination oh, run wild, it really does run it wild. Is, yeah, yeah, but that's the fun of it, isn't it? You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> I'm Freddie, and I'm ten years old. In our pond, we have frogs and and etc. Okay. What What's your favourite things when you're going out outside? Um, the the green grass and the blue sky and the air. My name's Poppy and I'm 11. Well, I am actually in Roots and Shoots and I really enjoy it. We get to plant stuff, we get to dig up stuff. Um, We've planted a few trees on our field and we've been to some awards ceremonies and we've got loads of awards before. And one thing that I really enjoy is kind of spending time with all the people when I'm in Roots and Shoots because we get to help all of the land across and we, we just all plant stuff and it's just all really enjoying. I'm Emily and I'm 10 years old. Plants a lot, like for the bees and everything. We've got our meadow with loads of like flowers and everything for the bees and it's like really good. And as well, we've got birds feeders over there and we see a lot of birds there. Why is it important to you that you do this? It's because bees are really important as well and just planting a lot is really much better for the environment and everything else. Lillian. What do you like about the the nature things that the school does? I like that there are lots of animals and plants and because me and Emily go every day, we fill the bird feeders up for the birds. So, like, they're just at the end of the school and whenever we go, we see a robin and it just comes and perches on a branch and watches us. 
We saw the robin. I was just out there a minute ago, and we saw the robin. He came along and followed us. Does the robin have a name? Do you just call him Robin? No, we just call him Robin. Just call him Robin. That's yeah. Very I'm Oscar, and I'm eight. Is it important to you, all the wildlife stuff that the school does? Yes. Why? Um, because I want um, the next generation to have um, as much nature as we have now. Um, and I hope that um, all the animals that we have um, don't go extinct so the next generation can see all the animals. Clearly, having had a chat with some of the kids, they have all really bought into it. Yeah, absolutely, they have. Um, I think uh, the children who have left, the ones we had during lockdown, were the children who really started it off with us um, because we had the opportunity with half a class to actually get outside um, and build some of the areas um, that we've developed. Those children then took it to other classes and told them why it was important. And to be honest... The children will listen to children the more than they will the adults. So if the older children are saying you need to look after this area because of the animals that live there, they'll take more notice of them than us. Um, so that had a really big impact. And for you personally, what does it mean, the fact that the school is doing this now? You know, you've been teaching for a few years. Is this the first kind of project that you've seen develop like this? And has it kind of made a difference to you? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, it's knowing that although we only have these children for a short space of time, these children can have a bigger impact as they go off. And, and I feel we've done something really important and that legacy hopefully will stay with them as they go through into adulthood as well. You know, they can take roots and shoots into their secondary school if they want to. So you never know. We might have a couple that take it to their next secondary schools that have never heard of it and then carry it on there and, and can reach more children there as well. So how, how long have you been involved in education? Ooh, um, just over 20 years. And put it into a bit of context, how important to you is what you've done here over the last couple of years in comparison to all oh, the stuff huge. you've done before? huge I, I don't think to be honest I don't think I've been in a school before that has given me such free reign and such support to to go for it and you know whatever I come up with and say mm, what about this they're like absolutely let's go for it and back me 100% and obviously I have Andrea that always supports me and helps me and it, yeah so it, that that is immense that makes such a huge difference you know like I've been at another school where it's very restricted or we can't do that or possibly that doesn't really fit in with what we're doing while well, as Andrea said you know we've changed the curriculum so actually we can fit it in because we think it's so important we're going to change to, to, to suit your needs and and so that makes a huge difference. And what sort of responses have you had from parents? Again, huge, and we like parents mm. saying about how their, their children, say the children's learning and just their well-being and how happy they are, and 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 they're so supportive of whatever we put forward. Mm. They want to join in and they want to help, and whether it's raising money for you know like the toilets winning mm. or you know because it's, it's not just about here. It's you know we look about other countries as well and how we can support other communities, and and they just are so supportive. You know whatever we ask of them, they all pull together, and that. That's what makes mm. Goat Lees Goat Lees, I think. And as a final thought, um, there may well be other teachers, other schools listening to, to the podcast at some point. What advice would you give to them? Don't be afraid, actually. Don't think money 
you know, lots of people that I've spoken to where I've gone to other groups and meetings and, and, and they said, well, we haven't got the money. It's not about the money. Time, having the time um, and, and, you know, not sort of giving up when it sort of looks a bit difficult. But there's always ways around things. But it, it's money's not the issue. It's the time, but it's worth it. And, and, and you're passing on that love to... You know the children of looking after our planet. You know, I just, I just think it's very important. So I don't, yeah, don't be put off. It, it's some, it's a lot of work, but it's definitely worth it. And if you've got a team behind you as well, that makes a huge difference. And you'll be surprised at how many people will come forward to, to offer help because I think a lot of people feel the same and they all want to help. So, excellent. It's clearly a very happy place. It's clearly a lot of people enjoying themselves here. It's inspiring to see both of you thanks ever so much for your time oh thank, thank you, you very much thank, thank you. you it's lovely to meet you Andrea Duruk and Elaine Paget there and thanks especially to all the children at Goatley's primary school as well it was great to meet you all and if you know of a school or a business or indeed a community group that's doing something amazing for wildlife the 2024 Wilder Kent Awards are now open for nominations just take a look at the website kentwildlifetrust.org.uk to get all the details Now, it's time, as we get towards the end of the pod, for the latest news. And top story this month is the arrival of another bison calf at the Bleen. Now, while the first calf that was born last year was a total surprise, this one was slightly more anticipated. The uh, rangers had noticed that the 19-year-old matriarch of the herd had changed her behaviour slightly, and calf number two arrived as, quotes the best Christmas present for the project. It means that there are now six bison in the woods in total outside Canterbury, and with big plans to install bison bridges to allow the animals to safely roam over the full 200 hectares of land, we're going to be bringing you lots more of the project in the months to come. It's all part of the post-Brexit changes, which mean cross-compliance rules that farmers had to follow in order to get rural payments no longer apply. That means now farmers could cut down hedges in spring and summer and risk harm to nesting birds, it could mean more farm pollution and soil can be washed into rivers. Rosie Hales from the National Trust says that for the benefit of nature and to give farmers clarity, it is vital that DEFRA addresses this regulatory gap with urgency. All the bodies are urging people to write to their MP to press for action. And it's not all always about being green. Sometimes being blue is good too. The Ernest Cook Trust has pledged £60,000 to help encourage blue influencers in Dover and Folkestone, aimed at encouraging 10 to 14-year-olds to create and run social action schemes to improve their environment over the next three years. The money's going to help pay for a blue mentor through the Kent Wildlife Trust to set things up. Ed Eikin from the Ernest Cook Trust says that young people are often the most passionate about the environment and are very aware of the issues we face with climate change. The Blue Influencer Scheme will give them the funding, platform and tools they need to make positive changes to benefit their entire community. Amen to that. Well, that's Shalot for this episode of Talk on the Wild Side. I just want to say a special thanks to Natasha Aiden-Yance for her invaluable help in getting everything set up. Without that, none of it would happen. So thank you very much, Tash. I'm Rob Smith. This has been a Wild Rover Media production. And until next time, do go wild in the country. <laughs> <laughs>